Thank you, David. Appreciate it, man. I really do. <laughs> David is always our man on the spot. Just a little background music. So I want to welcome uh, everybody. Happy Sabbath. Um, welcome everybody online. I, I was just talking uh, to Alan. We've known each other for a long time, but we really don't know each other. And I told him that as a typical pastor, I drop his name all the time. I make it sound like we're like this close. But uh, if you have a flyer and you look at his bio, he was made executive director and general counsel of uh, the church state council in 1994. That would have been my first uh, workers meeting in Northern California. And it was the first time that I met him. I think Northern had him at our workers meetings more than any other speaker. And uh, so that's one of the reasons why I think that I know you, but you don't know me at all. But uh, um, it's so good uh, to have you here, Alan. We're really happy to have you. And uh, I've been wanting to, to arrange this uh, for quite a while. Um, Alan he has a, first and foremost, a heart for Jesus. And second and foremost, or second foremost, right behind it, he has a mind for Jesus too, but a mind for justice and a mind for uh, the legal uh, ramifications of our end time message. And he has uh, been um, as well as all of our religious liberty uh, folks uh, across the world uh, alerted to the signs and times in which we're living. And um, I've always uh, been so touched and so moved by how he brings uh, both and all of that together is theology uh, and his law and his jurisprudence. So, uh, Alan, uh, come share with us tonight, and thank you so much. You going to come down there? I just have to follow you with the camera. Can we, yeah, let's, we can adjust the camera, but why don't we start with a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we're grateful for these Sabbath hours and the privilege to Lay all of our burdens at your feet and just enter into your rest. We, we don't just want to rest, we want to worship you and to enter your presence and to experience your presence and your encouragement and, and your joy on the Sabbath day. All the things that we are to talk about tonight, tomorrow, I just want to give you any of my own thoughts and plans and ask that you would guide and direct in, in all that we say. And You know your people and you know what needs to be shared and how to minister to each one of us. So we commit this Sabbath day to you. In Christ's name, amen. So tonight, uh, first of all, we are too small a group for you folks to sit so far back where I can hardly even see you. I certainly can't see if you're smiling. So that's just not fair. And by the way, I, you know, camera or no camera, you know, I might just walk back a little bit if need be. But no, let's, you know, I'm actually going to, I'm going to say something I hadn't planned to say. You know, I come from a Jewish family, grew up in New York City. Um, when I came back to New York after law school, um, 
Before I went to law school, I was asked to, to preach about once a month at what had been the German church off of Park Avenue on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, which was a neighborhood I grew up in. I, I went to, to high school one year, literally uh, like a block away from the church, never knew anything that there was an Adventist church or anything. Um, <clears throat> When I left for law school, there was we just had a Bible study, about 10 people, a, a Sabbath afternoon with English services in the basement uh, in a German church. Uh, you probably know the name John Pauline, very um, respected uh, pastor, theologian in the Adventist church. His dad was head elder of, that, of the old German church. Uh, so I was very fond of his folks. I uh, knew them long before I ever met um, John. Come back from law school, and the church had exploded. It had become the gathering place for all the um, graduate students and young professional, professionals, uh, a.k.a. yuppies back in the day. And there was a thriving community of probably a 100 or so um, with a very young demographic of, of mostly you know, mid to late 20s, uh, 30s, and, and like that, and very multicultural. A couple weeks after I got back, uh, we had a group over at my mom's apartment for, uh, for lunch after church, and everybody brought stuff they had cooked and prepared from the Greens cookbook, right? You know, gourmet vegetarian food. And it made my mom jealous. Why was she jealous? She came to New York after college as a young Jewish woman, uh, as a single woman wanting to make her way as a writer and producer. Uh, her dream was to get a show on Broadway. And, you know, it took her painful decades to build a sense of community among other women, other professionals, you know, in the city of New York. <clears throat> and here I show up, fresh out of law school, dropped right into this fantastic community of bright young people, made her jealous. Folks, what we have in the community of the Adventist church is priceless. You know? And COVID, I hope, taught us something about community. You know, we're still continuing. You guys are participating in this community online. And that's something that we weren't doing before, right? And, and you know, some of you may just be tired from the week like I am. And some of you, it may really be a struggle or difficult to, to attend in person. But you can still participate in, in, in this community. Anyway, I hadn't planned to start there because what I'm going to talk about tonight is the blessing of how the Lord finally led us to be able to get um, a very important law changed at the U.S. Supreme Court. My title is The Supreme Court Goes Postal because the case involves a mail carrier, a Sabbath-keeping mail carrier, who lost his job because of his Sabbath observance. But his Sabbath was not our Sabbath. Uh, he uh, returned from China, um, well, Pastor, 
Uh, I know that we're online. This is this going to be posted? Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm not sure that it was China, but it was certainly a country that um, it would be, anyway. Um, Anyway, he, he was a returning missionary, got a job as a rural route carrier in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And everything was fine until the Amazon contract came in. And, you know, the Amazon contract post office is delivering packages for Amazon on Sundays, which for Gerald Groff is the Lord's Day. And it's Gerald's case that went all the way to the Supreme Court that I'm going to tell you about. But I'm going to read you a scripture first because I want to kind of talk about it in the context of, of a particular theme in scripture. So we recently have been reading Ephesians in Sabbath school and in Ephesians 2, one of my favorite passages, beginning in verse 14, it says, For he himself... Referring to Christ, of course. He himself is our peace, who made both groups into one. So what are the two groups that Christ made into one? Jews and Gentiles, right? Earlier in the passage he says, Therefore, remember that formerly you the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision, remember you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. So he's made both Jews and Gentiles one. He broke down the barrier, the dividing wall, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. Now, <clears throat> when I came into the Adventist church, I was baptized by Morris Venn in 1979 at the PUC church Thanksgiving weekend. My early experience of Adventism, uh, I would say I was dropped right into the, I, I, today I'd call it the Adventist bubble. Back then I think I called it the Adventist cocoon. It, it seemed that this was a subculture that had these walls that were built. Uh, theological walls, social walls that that, you know, there was a dividing wall, and, and it's even reflected in our language because we have a certain word for those folks who are not members of our church. What do we call them? Non-Adventists. That's an us versus them kind of word. I'd like to think we should really just eliminate that word from our vocabulary. Now, 
how would you like it if somebody referred to you as a non? You know, you're not what I am, you're something else. You're a non. It, it's a dividing word. And um, I have to ask the question as we begin, has God called us to build walls or to build bridges? Now, when I was very young in my Adventist experience and I was looking for God's leading and, you know, what did he want me to do with my life? Um, I grew up reading a lot of history and um, I was quite motivated by all of the history that I read and, you know, I wanted to know the meaning and purpose of my life. I wanted to know how my life could make a difference. And I think that's one of the things that really led me to Christ in the first place because I really didn't know much about Jesus when I was growing up. Um, probably most of what I knew about Jesus I knew from listening to rock and roll music. You know, we had songs like, uh, I think it was the, um, I think it was the Doobie Brothers that made a hit out of the song, Jesus is Just All Right With Me. You know, and actually thinking about that lyric more recently, I'm like, I'm not sure that it was as positive an endorsement of Christ as it was intended to be. I mean, you know, if you go out to a restaurant and somebody asks you, you know, how was the restaurant? And you say, it was all right. That's not really a stunning endorsement. But at the time, you know, it certainly created a positive association, right? So um, when I began to feel call to religious liberty ministry, and I became acquainted with some of our church leaders, what I saw was that in the religious liberty ministry, the motto was to make friends before we need friends. And that we had leaders who were first and foremost at building bridges with other faith communities. One of the first people I met was Dr. Bert Beach, who served for many years as our General Conference Religious Liberty Director. Um, some have enjoyed, well, indulging the Adventist pastime to, you know, devour our leaders. Um, we, we like to find fault. So he had an audience with the Pope. And as you do when you're a diplomat, he provided the Pope with a symbolic uh, gift representative of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It had, I think, the three angels on one side and the Ten Commandments on the other side with the, the Sabbath commandment kind of emphasized. And uh, he never heard the end of how he'd given a medal to the Pope, right? People would criticize him. But Dr. Beach had been sent by the church uh, to be our representative at Vatican Council II back in the early 60s. And he spent several years there getting, you know, building bridges of friendship with leaders of all of the major faith traditions, all of the governments and diplomats of Europe, and, uh, you know, tremendous opportunities to do good coming out of all of those relationships. And, and all of that made a deep impression on me. 
Well, I was sitting in a law office uh, as a young attorney. I had set out my shingle in White Plains, New York, and I could meet clients in the city. I was living in the Hudson Valley. And I was contemplating when Congress enacted the Americans with Disabilities Act. Because in that act, they said that employers would have to accommodate persons with disabilities, would have to reasonably accommodate them short of an undue hardship. It's the same language that Congress had used to provide for religious accommodation with an exception. They defined undue hardship as a significant difficulty or expense. Back in the 1970s, when the Supreme Court was presented with a, a religious accommodation case, and it was a Sabbath accommodation case. It was a gentleman from the Worldwide Church of God who worked for TWA. And the court was reluctant to provide vigorous protection or, or special favors or special treatment for religion. And so they dumbed down the standard of undue hardship and said, well, employers are off the hook if they have even a bare minimum hardship. De minimis was the Latin term they used, bare minimum. Not very much at all. And of course, that sent the wrong signal to employers that really they could get away with not accommodating pretty much for almost any excuse. And we'd been living with that ridiculous interpretation and standard for many, many years. When I first um, was called to this ministry, the very first uh, gathering of my colleagues from around the North American division, several of us who were attorneys sat down at breakfast one day and we began to discuss how can we get the law changed. And over the next three decades, we built a coalition with many other faith groups. It was co-chaired by uh, a gentleman who's become a close friend and colleague of mine, served for many years as legislative director of the American Jewish Committee, Richard Fulton, an observant Jew. And um, when James Standish was at the General Conference, he co-chaired it with Richard uh, for a number of years, you know, for the Adventist Church. And we built this coalition and built these bridges of friendship and introduced bills in Congress year after year after year, trying to get Congress to pay attention. And, and we got support from some very powerful uh, leaders in Congress. Uh, on the Democrat side at times, we had support and sponsorship from Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton, from Senator John Kerry, two who, as, as you well know, um, were, became unsuccessful presidential candidates, right? And on the Republican side, uh, Pennsylvania Senator Rick Santorum was a sponsor and others. But trying to protect minority rights through the majoritarian body is very, very challenging. It's not, um, it's just not a, a good fit. I mean, it took 25 years to get the Americans with Disabilities Act passed. 
We kept trying, but we were getting nowhere. At some point, the strategy started to shift and uh, to trying to get a case before the Supreme Court. And our associate general counsel at the general conference, Todd McFarland, had a lot to do with that. Uh, in 2019, he had an Adventist Sabbatarian case uh, that he filed, asked the Supreme Court to take. You know, the process, court takes just a, a small fraction of cases that are appealed to it. Um, so you file a petition called a cert petition, a petition for certiorari. I don't actually know what certiorari means in Latin, but that's the petition that you file, and you're asking the court you know, to grant uh, the petition and, and hear the case. So the case was Patterson against Walgreens. Uh, at that time, the court already had a ton of religion cases. They weren't going to take another religion case, and, and they didn't take this one. But a couple of things happened that were very, very important. First, whenever there is a case challenging the interpretation of a statute, the court will often ask the government, the federal government, to weigh in and you know, tell the court what their view of the statute is. And, and it's the Solicitor General's office, part of the Justice Department, that represents the U.S. government before the Supreme Court. So during the Trump administration, 2019, the Solicitor General um, is asked to weigh in and files a, a, a brief and says, yeah, that de minimis standard is wrong. It needs to be looked at. Well, three justices said, this is the wrong case, but it's the right issue. They, they issued a, a, an opinion agreeing not to hear the Patterson case, but also saying we're looking for the right case. Because clearly, undue hardship means something more than just a hardship. It doesn't mean a bare minimum hardship. Right? Make sense? So we knew that the court was looking for a case. The next year, there were a couple of other cases that were filed. They were Hail Marys, because neither one of them were particularly good cases for the court to decide this issue. Well, 2019, um, actually it would have been more like, I want to say maybe, t I get the timing off. It might have been late 2017, I get a call um, because Gerald Groff has, you know, he's gotten in trouble now because he's not delivering packages on Sundays and he gets his first uh, write-up or his first warning, his first discipline from the post office. And he calls a, uh, a Christian ministry in Pennsylvania. And he's not looking for a lawyer, he's looking for a job. He's thinking he needs to get out of there. And they tell him, well, and, and this is a ministry that was, well, you remember a case called Hobby Lobby? So there was a companion case out of Pennsylvania, and this group had started that companion case. So they said to Gerald, well, we don't have a job for you, but we can get you a good lawyer. 
So they reached out to a group called Alliance Defending Freedom. They're the ones who brought you the, well, they're located right here in Scottsdale, uh, for one. Uh, they did the, uh, the Jack Phillips Masterpiece Cake Shop case and, and quite a few other cases. You know, very, very prominent organization, uh, national organization of, of Christian attorneys. And um, so the Pennsylvania group calls ADF out here in, in Scottsdale, and their legal director picks up the phone and he calls me. Why does he call me? Because I learned from Dr. Beach and others, Roland Hegstead, to make friends before you need friends, and that the gospel is not exclusive. We don't just make friends with people who think the way we do. Now, you know, ADF, there are some wonderful Christian folks there. Um, they have very different ideas about some things than I do. But, you know, we can find common ground, and there are issues that we can work together on where we're going to be able to see eye to eye. And I've built some, some wonderful friendships and relationships over the years with folks over at ADF. And, you know, I, because of my role in the church, I've been able to develop kind of a special expertise in religious discrimination and employment. Because what did I start doing? Sabbath discrimination cases. Uh, and so I would get calls and get some referrals from ADF and help some other folks from, with other uh, religious discrimination issues. So I get the call, will you, you know, take a look at this case for Mr. Groff and, you know, will you help him with the post office? And I had had so much experience dealing with the post office. They are absolutely the worst when it comes to accommodation. And there is a reason we have the expression in our language going postal. I'm going to jump ahead for just a minute because I'm sitting at oral argument in the Supreme Court. I didn't argue the case, mind you. We, uh, we'll get to that part of the story. And they're talking about the second issue in the case, which is at what point does, if you accommodate this guy and it has an impact on other workers, at what point is that an undue hardship? The, is it the impact on other workers, on their morale, on their schedules, or does it have to be on the operations and the conduct of the business? Well, the statute says undue hardship on the conduct of the business. So they're having that discussion. And, and they're talking about morale and the impact on morale. And I wanted to jump up and I wanted to shout to the justices and say, you do know this is the post office we're talking about, don't you? And you're worried about morale at the post office, right? I had a case one time that was so frustrating. Many times this particular case was frustrating. I had a very easygoing client. He never got ruffled, and I told him one time, I'm ready to go postal. He, he was okay, you know, just kind of taking it in stride. I, I, get, I get worked up. Anyway, so Gerald Groff is delightful Christian. You know, I, I was able to go out to Pennsylvania, conduct some depositions, do, you know, 
what we do, discovery. I mean, we worked with him. There's a, a period of time before he got fired, we worked with him for about a year and a half. Then we filed the case in court, and we get to the place where both sides say to the court, we want summary judgment. We believe you can decide the case because there really are no factual disputes for the jury to decide. The district court holds first well, they accommodated him, they, they reasonably accommodated him because he didn't have to work a whole lot of Sundays, even though they kept pressuring him and writing him up for the Sundays that he wasn't working, um, that he was scheduled where they hadn't found a substitute. Um, and he went through his progressive discipline. But he was reasonably accommodated. Now you tell me, if the boss says to you, you can have every other Sabbath off. That's reasonable, right? I'll meet you halfway. How much does that really help you? You know? I mean, you're still going to wind up saying, well, you know, that's a good start, boss, but, I mean, uh, God tells me I can't work the other two Saturdays either. So, you know, you got a problem here because... Uh, He's got more authority than you do. And I answer to his authority first before I answer to you. Well, the point is that, we'll, well, we'll get to when it goes up on appeal. So the district court first says, yes, the Postal Service reasonably accommodated Mr. Groff, and then also said, but they didn't have to because to do anything further would have been an undue hardship based on this bare minimum standard. Goes up on appeal, and the appellate court, no, well, okay, so we lose, and we're scratching our heads. Now what? We really need help here on the appeal. And the folks in Pennsylvania said, well, in this companion case to um, uh, Hobby Lobby, uh, we went with an outfit called First Liberty, um, just as conservative as uh, Alliance Defending Freedom. They're the ones who did Coach Kennedy's case last year at the Supreme Court. So we give them a call, and they're very interested in the case, and they agreed to take the case, and they uh, have relationships with a lot of really good uh, lawyers who, who do argue before the Supreme Court, and they recruited a partner at one of the big law firms in Texas to, to handle the appeal. And they worked on the appeal, and we go to the Third Circuit, and the court says, well, we disagree. The post office didn't accommodate because they didn't eliminate the obligation to work on Sundays. Great. We got that much with them. But then they said, but they didn't have to because it would have been an undue hardship based on this bare minimum test. Perfect. Now we've set the issue up perfectly for the Supreme Court because the issue is, what is the standard of undue hardship? And it's perfect on another count also. And this is where I really see God's hand in all of this, one of the places. So... The Postal Service is part of the federal government. 
So who gets to represent the Postal Service at the Supreme Court? The Solicitor General. But we have a new administration. So now what is Elizabeth Prelegar, the Solicitor General, going to say to the court about the undue hardship standard? Is she going to say, well, I disagree with Jeffrey Wall, the Solicitor General during the Trump administration, who said that de minimis has to go. I think de minimis needs to be here to stay. And if she says that, you've got the federal government arguing both positions. That's not really going to be very persuasive, right? It's like, well, which Solicitor General should we really believe? The conservative one or the more liberal one. And with this conservative court, that would be a very tough sell for her, right? So she was in a box. And she tried to thread the needle, so to speak, by, by arguing in her brief and at oral argument, she's, she's trying to say that, well, it's true that some of the courts are applying this de minimis test but many courts are vigorously protecting the rights of workers. She can't even finish her sentence, and she's interrupted by Justice Alito. And he holds up a stack of briefs, and he says, and it's not a perfect quote, but basically what he says is, the Sikh community and the Muslims and the Orthodox Jews and the Seventh-day Adventists, they don't agree with you. There were 33 friend-of-the-court briefs filed in support of Mr. Groff. I had a hand in that. The folks at First Liberty had a hand in that. We worked together to reach out to this broad interfaith network of friends that we have cultivated over many decades and they showed up. And because they showed up, and they all said the same thing to the court, it's not working. They told the stories of their members who are suffering discrimination in the workplace and pleading with the court to fix it. It was all a variation on the same theme. And it was very powerful. It was very persuasive. So you see, that's why when I tell this story, I like to think of the lesson of this case being about bridge building and about making friends before you know that you need friends, right? The court changed the standard and held that undue hardship really means what it says. It has to be a real hardship in light of the company's circumstances. So um, one of the developments, just to illustrate how this might work, you know, we had argued that if you think about it, if you have a large company and you have to um, pay somebody overtime to cover a Saturday for a Sabbath keeper, well, what do hourly workers make these days? So let's say they're paid 30 bucks an hour. Well then, 
time and a half overtime is going to be $15 an hour for an eight-hour day, that's 120 bucks. You know, if they're making $40 an hour, then maybe it's $160. But you can see that for a large company, you know, paying some overtime is not going to be a, a, a real significant expense, is it? So uh, there has been a long-standing case against SkyWest Airlines. I had a piece of it when we first filed it with the Federal Civil Rights Agency some years ago. Uh, I thought it was teed up for trial this November, but that's been put off and they've been trying to get it settled. But after the Groff decision came down, SkyWest has now said, look, in a pinch, you know, we'll provide financial incentives for pilots to cover a Sabbath, you know, flight schedule to accommodate, you know, an Adventist. Um, so it, it's having a real effect. Now the case isn't settled yet, and it, you know, ink, there's no, we don't know what's going to happen, but clearly there's a big shift in attitude um, because the court has now said two things. First, that undue hardship really means what it says, and it has to be a hardship on the conduct of the business, on the operation of the business. You know, some employee grumbling just isn't going to cut it. And the way we got there was through building these bridges of friendship. So I would ask you, do we build walls or do we build bridges? One of the first things that, I don't know where I got this, but I know I've, I've been saying it probably since I early in my ministry here. Somewhere I got the idea that the first rule of success is just to show up. I mean, it seems very, very simple, right? But nothing happens until you show up. And, and, and my attitude has always been, you know, to try to, to, to be willing to show up where God leads me with an open heart and an open mind. Who am I to encounter? Who can I encourage? Who can I befriend, you know, uh, at this particular occasion, whatever it might be? But see, we all have very different spheres of influence. I have spheres of influence within a certain segment of the legal community, but I have no influence in, in the spheres that you folks operate in. So it's, you know, um, I, you can't do what I do, but I can't do what you can do and what God is calling you to do, right? So I would challenge all of us to just... Think about how God can, can use us if we have an open heart and a commitment to, um, to building bridges rather than walls. You know, years ago, uh, George Vandeman published a book that was really a paradigm-shifting book, I think, for the Adventist church. You know, for, for decades, in the early years of, of Adventism, when America was quite Protestant, 
Adventist evangelists would love to debate publicly. And they would love to argue and convince about the Sabbath, right? So it seems that there was kind of a cultural habit that developed within the Adventist church of looking at other faith communities in terms of not what's right about them, but what's wrong, and picking apart the flaws. Now, tomorrow, we're going to do a little bit of that because uh, it's, it's my belief that church is in deep still there we go it's been a little flake do you want me to switch mics Greg check let me give you this one okay And we need to look at some of the developments within the theology and practice of the American church in light of Bible prophecy. But Vandeman wrote a book some years back. Actually, it was ghostwritten by Marty Weber, Adventist Hot Potatoes and all that. Um, it's called What I Like About. You knew where I was going with this. What I like about the Baptists, what I like about the Methodists, what I like about the Catholics. It was a paradigm shift. Instead of looking at different groups from, you know, what we think they do differently or what they get wrong, it was, you know, what do they get right? You know, what can we affirm? And it's, it's kind of like Dale Carnegie 101, you know, how to win friends and influence people. You don't win friends and influence people by telling them how wrong they are, but, you know, by affirming them and building bridges of friendship, encouraging them in their walk with Christ or in their understanding of God, to have a relationship with God, right? That's how you, you win friends and, and, and influence people. It's... But somehow, we develop these sort of cultural habits of, of, of fault-finding. <clears throat> you know, it, it reminds me of something that I've often said to churches that, um, you know, if, if our, our attitude seems to be, if you want to join our church, you have to learn to sin like we do. Right? You know, fault-finding... We've made an art form of that. But, you know, maybe even, you know, to some extent of things like gluttony as well. But, um, but you know, there are other sins like, you know, smoking and, and alcohol and swearing maybe that, uh, you know, we really frown upon. But, uh, uh, you know, every church has kind of its, its uh, litany of, of sins and which are the sins that we exclude and which are the ones that we kind of wink at. 
God's calling us to overcoming, isn't he? And we're going to talk more about what kind of people God is really calling us to be tomorrow. Um, how can we build bridges? How can you build bridges? I've often thought that asking the right questions is often more important than getting the right answers. You know, we're not going to get the right answers if we're not asking the right questions to begin with. And the answers that we find so convincing at one time in our life may seem less so at another time. And the more we ask, keep asking the question, we may find that we're, we're getting deeper in our understanding, right? So there's some questions that we need to keep asking. I, 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 frankly, in religious liberty work, I get so tired of people asking questions about things that the Bible doesn't give the answer to. Like, when are the Sunday laws coming? Or what's going to precipitate the Sunday laws? And if we had an answer to that, you wouldn't be asking me. You'd already know. Right? There are questions that we keep asking that we don't have the answers to. I would rather see us ask questions like, what are we supposed to do with what the Bible has already given us? You know, as Adventists, we have so much understanding of last day events, of prophecy, of, of just, you know, the gospel. And, and what it means to live the Christian life. And the question is, what are we supposed to do with what we know? And that's a really, I think that's a really important question. And it's, the answer is going to be different for each one of us. Because God is not calling me to do what you're doing. And he's not calling you to do what I'm doing. You know, the call of God in each of our lives is unique. And we have unique set of relationships and unique set of gifts, unique set of opportunities uh, to, to grow where God has planted us, right? And, you know, there's no sort of hierarchy within the kingdom of God, within the community of fellowship. You know, it's not that, you know, your pastor or, or you know, because I'm at the union office, oh, well, I'm, I'm higher than somebody, that's completely ridiculous because we are all on a level playing field, brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And the ones that we call nons, they're our brothers and sisters too, whether they realize it or not. And so we treat them that way. And maybe if we treat them that way, they'll start to realize what it means to be our brother and sister in Christ. Does that start to make any sense? So, <clears throat> Friday nights, I don't know about you, I'm usually heading off to bed right about now. Greg, Greg, 
Greg kind of twisted my arm here a little bit, so here we are, and I was happy to, you know, share this praise story about God's leading us to the Supreme Court and and this wonderful accomplishment. But uh, I think, Pastor, we're gonna call it a call it a night, and we've got a big day tomorrow. Um, Sabbath school, we're gonna talk about what's Christian about Christian America. And uh, the sermon, Finding the Real Jesus in an Age of Counterfeits. If, you know, if ever we wondered whether Jesus' teachings in, in Matthew 24 were, were right on, you know, false Christ and false prophets, boy, that's what we're living with right now, big time, in our generation. And talk about, you know, counterfeits. And then, uh, well, I don't have my brochure. I don't even remember what we're doing in the afternoon, but we'll figure it out. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna look we're gonna look at prophecy some tomorrow, um, and I hope kind of get a clear sense of uh, a clearer sense of of our unique voice in this very divided age, right? So, you wanna have closing prayer for us? Sure thing. I wanna thank you for letting me twist your arm into a Friday night. I'm not in bed nowhere near this time on Friday night. I won't share with you, but I just thought I'd make you all do what I normally do on a Friday night. But uh, I'll probably, I would normally be up for a couple more hours, but uh, maybe. But uh, thank you so much, Alan. And uh, I, I, I love what he said. Uh, he and I have talked that um, we kind of came into the church as adult converts in the neighborhood of each other within a few years. And what truly hits me about this decision and about what you have brought out to us is up until a few years ago, I thought that the end time message was supposed to be preached from a bunker. You know, that we were being attacked and anything that wasn't us, anything that wasn't uh, Adventist, anything that wasn't Saturday, um, that was uh, to be fought. And the more that I've got to know Christ over the past 30 years, um, I just see the fallacy of that. I see us playing into the hands of... Uh, where we want to, where we wouldn't be if we're making enemies of other Christians. You and know, I, I gotta say, Greg, um, when we went to D.C. for oral argument of the case, First Liberty is very well funded. They have, you know, big Texas money behind them, and they brought in their supporters, and we had a dinner the night before, and they blew me away. They gave me this fantastic, like, Crystal Eagle Lifetime Achievement Award. You know, the Adventist Brethren, they appreciate me. You know, mm -hmm. I have good support from administration, but nobody's ever done that, you know, right. for, for me, the way they really showed their appreciation for right. the work that we do. And, you know, as much as, as we have our disagreements, um, you know, I will always cherish the relationships that mm -hmm. I have built with 
with these folks. They're, you know, and they're wonderful Christians. But there's a, you know, there's a lot of Christians who don't understand what we understand about prophecy, right? Mm -hmm. But we don't have any enemies. This bunker mentality has to go. Has to. Yeah. We don't have enemies. We have brothers and sisters who may not realize there are brothers and sisters yet. Or if they are part of another denomination, well then, yes, they are our brothers and sisters. If it's the Christian part of nationalism that is involving the church to make it apostate, to make it uh, the beast, the Christian part is the part we should be building the bridges with. We're in the same boat. And yes, there may be a mess to be uh, settled out as far as Sabbath and as far as some other things that we have uh, indifferent, but we can't do that by walling them off. And I think that one of the reasons why I see a lot of Adventists falling for uh, the national part versus the Christian part is because we still have that bunker mentality with the other Christians. And uh, the Christian part for the national part, um, there's, no, uh, there's no distinction. The beast doesn't have any distinction when it comes to that. Um, you know, uh, to find out what a true Christian is, is what is supposed to keep us from that. Uh, and from that, that nasty amalgamation, two horns, ten horns, seven heads, seven heads, ten horns. Sorry, that's I got that wrong, too, but anyway. But thank you so much, Alan, and uh, thank you for at least beginning to open our eyes about that. So thank you all for your time tonight. I really, really appreciate it. It's good to see everybody. <laughs>